Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. My subject is the celebration of female icons in martial arts throughout history. Rather than discussing the actual history of these different figures, I was intrigued by how they might inspire martial arts women of today. I chose the following five figures from different parts of the world. The Amazons, masters of horseback archery, who gave a name to woman warriorhood. Amanorinus, the spear and longbow wielding fearsome Nubian or Cushite warrior queen, who broke an uncharacteristically generous peace treaty with Rome. Lin Xinyang, the teenage prodigy of spear and sword of late Ming Dynasty China, who went from prostitution to queen to martial arts trainer of the royal concubines to courageous warrior who went down in a blaze of glory. Ella Hatton, the 19th century American actress trained in a variety of edged weapons and fighting styles who defeated at least 60 men in fencing bouts. And Edith Garrod, the jiu-jitsu teacher who trained the suffragette bodyguards to defend themselves as they fought for women's rights in Edwardian England. I then decided to put these figures to this episode's guest, the martial arts woman herself, Andrea Harkins. Andrea Harkins has been training in martial arts since 1989. She is the author of The Martial Arts Woman and Martial Arts Inspiration for Everyone and has written extensively on motivation for a wide variety of national and international publications. These magazines include The Martial Arts Magazine, Martial Arts Illustrated, The Martial Arts Guardian, Conflict Manager and her own local parish news. She has a regular blog, website and podcast show for which she was a finalist in the 2018 Coupon Awards for Best Martial Arts Podcast. Her presence in martial arts media is extensive and has won her a lot of critical acclaim. Andrea regularly receives high rankings as a martial arts influencer. Not only has she been interviewed on Martial Thoughts, Martial Art Nation, Warrior Cast, The Dynamic Dojo Radio Show, Martial Arts Media, Redly Random, Life is a Marathon, The Master Jack Show and many podcasts and radio shows, she was inducted into the USA Martial Arts Hall of Fame in 2017 and the Canadian Martial Arts Hall of Fame in 2016. Andrea has well and truly made her mark with her respective passion, bringing attention to and helping to unite women through the practice of martial arts. She seemed to me to be the perfect choice to discuss historic female icons in martial arts history. Welcome, Andrea Harkins, the martial arts woman. Andrea, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for stepping up to, not a challenge, but a request from me to discuss five martial arts icons, as opposed to what you normally do in the martial arts women, which is interviewing and writing about living martial arts women. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. We've been friends for a long time on social media Friends always help each other out, right? Today's topics are so interesting because, as you said, they are different. And I look forward to your perspectives on these wonderful female icons from the past and delving into how I sort of see it 
in life today and are women martial artists of today, or maybe just these general categories that we have about women martial artists of today. So I'm really excited about it. And I truly thank you for having me on the show. Thank you very much, Andrea. Okay, so without further ado, let's get into the first one. So it seemed like an obvious starting point would be the Amazons. Although the stories of the Amazons have become part of ancient mythology, there is reasonable evidence to suggest their origins to be found in the history of the Scythian and Lycian warrior women. The Scythians, an ancient nomadic people supposedly of Iranian origin, were amongst the first warriors who mastered the martial art of horseback archery. Archaeologists have discovered one-third of Scythian women were buried with weapons, such as the Scythian war bow, and bore wounds inflicted during battle. Meanwhile, the so-called first historian Herodotus observed in his time of 5th century BCE that the ancient Lycians of what is now mainly modern Turkey had followed a strict policy of noble lineage down maternal lines. He believed these people to be the descendants of the mythical Amazons. The Amazon warriors are found to be regular characters in a lot of famous Greek hero stories. Heracles, Roman name Hercules, encounters the Amazons and their queen Hippolyte in one of his twelve labours. Theseus starts a final war with the Amazons after abducting their queen. The legends of the god Dionysius either fighting a war against the Amazons or teaming up with them to overthrow the Titans. Amazons have become the most noticeable icon for female warriorhood in the Western world. In modern culture, they're represented by such fictional characters as DC Comics' superhero Wonder Woman, a feminist icon from her inception, and the 1990s TV show Xena Warrior Princess. Besides the simple image and now apparent proof that there have been female warrior traditions, we know that women also fought as gladiators for example, there are certain martial arts associated with the Amazons. Horseback archery is the most obvious martial art legacy, although no one is claiming a direct Scythian lineage and there have been military regiments as well as martial arts schools that claim influence and even ancestry from the Amazons. Yeah, that's a lot of information, but I'm going to touch on some of the things that kind of popped out at me when you were talking about that. Yeah. And those are really warriorhood and beauty Mm -hmm. uh, because we still see this today. People forget really that women martial artists of today are warrior warriors in so many ways because they are much more than martial artists. This is really what's happened over my research and discussions with martial art women over time, whether from my book, The Martial Arts Women, or the podcast. What I find is that women martial artists are what I call like treasures. They have treasures of information within. They are not just this martial artist. You talk to them and then suddenly you realize all of the different endeavors that they do. And this is sort of that Wonder Woman spirit, I guess you might say. Hey, I'm not just a martial artist. I'm a mother. I'm an entrepreneur. I do this. I do that. And the list goes on for all of the different things that they actually do in their lives. This is how we can actually consider them these Wonder Women. Yes. Uh, many overcome physical abuse in their lives. Many are mothers. They're professionals. They're successful. They help others. There's this constant generosity of martial art women. They create sponsorships for other women to be able to practice martial arts. They have their own martial arts schools. This is why they're so wonderful, you might say, because there's just so much more to them. 
some of the women that I've talked about are, are true warriors. In my book, I have a, a chapter, many chapters of women warriors, I would consider. Yes. There's one, Master, Master Kim Tran, who came to America from Vietnam, one of the last to escape Vietnam. And she talks about her harrowing journey to get here as a young girl on boats with, with water splashing over the sides, rocking and rolling with no food, uh, with no money, and just hoping that she'll make it alive with some of the members of her family and then getting to America and having a new start. And today she's a master in martial arts. That is incredible. Funnily enough, I recently had some discussions with people about immigration and migration and different people. And obviously, I come from a family of immigrants. I come from a family of travellers, should we say, on both yes. sides of it. I mean, from, from historically because of the circus connection. And I've ended up becoming a martial arts cross trainer. And you think about travelling and moving about. That is an amazing journey. I mean, it's so hard to, it, we can't relate to it. When you're living in a very much a privileged environment as, as we're, mm-hmm. we're in, you know, the sort of environment that we're in. I mean, the fact that the, to go through that type of hardship. Um, and I often think that we had a discussion off air about what constitutes a warrior and what doesn't constitute a warrior. And, and people have said, well, unless it's military, then it's not a warrior because it's connected to war. And you're thinking, well, OK, well, if you're practicing a war art, then does that not still make you a warrior? And mm-hmm. worry, war has been used metaphorically back to some of the earliest examples of language. So what makes your example given that any less of a worry? That's a true worry. She's fought all the way out of her country across a, a hazardous environment, elements themselves, in order to get to the USA. So to me, that is a worry a woman. That's how is that any less of a worry than somebody? Who, and it's not taking anything away from from soldiers who fight in the battle. Furthest from it. But I don't see that being any less a description of a warrior than somebody who is literally fighting another person. I completely agree. And the fact is that this warrior spirit, yes, it it got her to America through all of those trials and tribulations. But yes. what did she do when she got here? She worked hard. She mm-hmm. worked doing different jobs. She started training in martial arts. And she's lived a positive, productive life here uh, and helps other people all the time because she's a martial art instructor and a master in martial arts. So that's the thing about warriorship is there really is no beginning and end, you might say. For most of these women, it's really lifelong commitments to becoming the best that they can be and not letting obstacles stand in the way. And she's a great example of that. The other thing that I started to talk about was beauty, because beauty is such a difficult thing in our culture these days. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want martial art women to be sexualized. Mm-hmm. I know I don't like that. I don't like it when somebody posts a, a photo of like a model doing a high kick, wearing very little clothing. To me, yes. that does not emphasize it doesn't really portray the beauty of the martial art woman the martial art woman comes in all shapes and sizes and she might wear different uniforms she might have different styles of martial art but there's an innate beauty in that woman because she's confident she wants what's best for other people I mean there's just so much about her that creates a beautiful aura and yes, she might be physically beautiful. Some are, some aren't. But but beauty, when we talk about the warrior and the Amazons, yes. we're, 
the beauty really is not in their physical features. It's in their actions and their behaviors and their goals and insights. Yeah, because I just think that's neat. Yeah, definitely. There's all sorts of interpretations of what an Amazonian beauty might be. But you look back at the Scythian history, it was normal within that culture to have warrior women in the battlefield, fighting alongside the men, fighting on their own, praised for their courage, uh, enemies being terrified of them, being ruthlessly effective, creating such an impression which might have started this whole legend, which has now just become to be the go-to embodiment that people think of, certainly in Western civilization, Mm -hmm. of the warrior woman. But yet that was within that culture, if you look within the Scythian culture, that was very normal. And yet these were women who would have been mothers and wives. So the beauty would have been accepted within their own culture, but they also Mm -hmm. would have been accepted as warriors as well. The two of them wouldn't have been seen as inseparable. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, if you like, we'll move on to... uh, (laughs) So, next up, we go to the African continent and the Nubian queen, Amarinus. The empire of the Kush in ancient Nubia, now northern Sudan, southern Egypt, had a long tradition of independent, strong female rulers known as the Kandakis. Of all the Kandakis, the most famous was Queen Amarinus. She was responsible for pushing back at the Roman Empire, expanding her boundaries, capturing several Roman forts in 25 BCE. She fought in her army and is described in contemporary Roman accounts as a fierce, one-eyed warrior, taking home the head of a bronze statue of the Emperor Augustus, Rome's first emperor. Although her forces were later driven back by the Romans, they continued to fight on their borders until a peace treaty was made. Amanorinus was able to negotiate a peace treaty that lasted for three centuries, only ceasing when the Kushite kingdom had begun to fade in power. Amanorinus appears to have been an all-round effective warrior queen in both battle and ensuring safety for her citizens. Historians have noted that although the Romans appear to have been in a position of power, they made relatively generous concessions to the Kushites. Queen Amanorinus had inherited a kingdom that only now historians are beginning to appreciate was a cultural match to neighbouring Egypt, being one of the cradles of early civilization with its own distinct language, economy and particular skill in the martial art of archery. Unsurprisingly, it's also remarked that the participation of women in society was high compared to most other civilizations of their time. Besides being a superb diplomat, negotiator and war general, Queen Amanorinus was an excellent warrior in her own right comparable to any other warrior queen throughout history. She was not only an expert archer, but contemporary Roman chroniclers have noted her excellent use of the spear. Well, of course, the strong female ruler inspiration comes to me, the negotiation of peace, and how I see this in today's world, I guess, for the warrior queen aspect, and even the the peace aspect, how I can really relate this to personal issues that I see in our female martial art women of today is that many overcome abuse situations in their lives. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, you have to fight the internal battles. And that's kind of where I'm going to go with this. Yes. The, the internal battles are when you're abused, you know, and it's interesting because of all the women I've interviewed, on the Martial Arts Women podcast that I do, they, so many have had abuse situations in their lives, sexual abuse mostly. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting to see how they eventually 
pulled away from that and fought these internal battles to get to who they are today. It's a process that maybe none of us can truly understand unless we've been in that situation. Yes. And the thought is that someone has taken control from them, just like (laughs) any battle. Someone has taken control of that battle and is winning. And you feel the defeat and you wonder, where are you going to go with this? How are you going to get through this? And some of them just eventually step away or get strong enough. Maybe it's through martial art practice. Maybe it's through mindset or maybe it's through someone who inspires them. But they have to eventually break through. Yes. That to me is the warrior queen aspect. They have now accelerated who they are and they've raised themselves up to a level deserving of their own respect and other people's respect. The peace aspect is that they have to find an internal peace in order to go on. And in doing that, they often create peace for others because what they do, for instance, these women who share their stories with me, they are essentially negotiating peace treaties with themselves and with other women who have been in similar situations. And these are all martial art women. So you might step back and say, well, why, if they're martial artists, why did they allow themselves to be abused? Because some were actually abused when they were practicing martial arts um, by different people. And some of them just began learning martial arts to overcome the abuse. But to me, they are these female rulers that we know have the strength to overcome. And if they're going to represent us in some way as martial art women, I mean, I can say that they've inspired me to be more. So in a sense, they've helped rule over the struggles that many women have. And they've also indulged in accepting peaceful treaties with themselves. They've had to build their own peace. And in doing so and in sharing stories, they are cultivating peace for other women who are devastated in their own lives. So I know that's a little bit far-fetched, but I find them to fall into this category of the strong female ruler, the warrior queen, and the peaceful warrior. Yeah, I mean, you've got the self-sovereignty, haven't you? I mean, as well, I mean, the, I mean mm-hmm. which we're discussing there. We see we think about the warrior queen. I mean, it's taking... A big part, I think, of martial arts teaching is about giving people self-sovereignty. And, mm-hmm. and and for a long time, and I know at least one of your subjects in, in the book, The Martial Arts Woman, was a very successful martial arts competitor who had to work within not only a very male-dominated world in the martial arts, which continues to be to this mm-hmm. day. I mean, things yeah. are getting better in many respects, but despite what some people have said in the comments section, which has often shocked me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I, 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 honestly, I, I read, I remember one time I read some comments, someone went off on one of the things that you put up, they were going, this isn't a problem anymore, though, is it? Men and women are equal within the martial arts world. We haven't got this issue anymore. It's moved on. And they're going, really? Have you really haven't been paying attention to yeah, <laughs> what's going yeah. on at the moment? You know, all you're just doing <laughs> is that you're only just beginning to hear a bit of some of it now because, you know, good people like yourself bringing it to people's attention. Uh, Joy Turberfield, I think it was. Uh, yeah. The amazing story. And within her particular system, there was not only just 
male domination, there was actual proper misogyny going against yeah. it. And they don't didn't yeah. like women as martial artists. They didn't want women to be to be martial artists. Despite the fact, as, as we know, you know, throughout history, there's always been warrior women in, in every era as well. And again, if you see the case with Amanorinus and about that choice to make peace, and the fact that she was able to negotiate from a position of strength, she hadn't um, won every battle against the Romans. She'd won a very significant one, and she'd shown that she was a significant threat that they decided, look, we just, we'd rather just give them what they want <laughs> yeah, yeah. Than, than to have to keep defending our forts because they're quite capable of, of, of causing trouble. And she was, obviously there was probably, you know, well, there was definitely problems after that and all this sort of thing, but she kept that peace treaty between Rome and the Nubian Empire, the Kushite mm -hmm. Empire, for centuries after that. Yeah. She opted for that rather than opting for conquest. I mean, equally, she could have been an overreacher or say, I tell you what, no, no, we're going to push further. We're gonna, we'll, we'll attack again or we'll break this peace treaty and we'll go further, you know, when we think they're weak. You know, Rome's goes through its different periods of time when it's strong and when it's weak. I mean, this was early on. This was Augustus was in power then, so he was very strong, and which makes this even more impressive. But as you say, the fact that she would opt for peace for her people and, you know, and of course, by extension, although I'm sure it probably wasn't her intention at the time, in, in context, better for the other, for everyone else involved on, on her boundaries, that, uh, mm -hmm. that she went for a peace option. But yeah, it really, in many ways, it does, it does capture the message that we often want to be teaching with martial arts, don't we? You know, fighting fiercely for what you believe in, fighting for yourself, having the strength to do that, but also being able to be peaceful as well. Yeah, and I, I think the strong female ruler, whether we're talking about time periods in the past yes. or today, they do what's right and they pave a way. That's the really important point because women couldn't learn martial arts. Uh, they did. They yes. learned it, obviously, but it, it wasn't, you know, yeah. in, our, in our culture, in our time, it was not prevalent even so many years ago. No. So even when I began martial arts in 1989, yeah. I was just one of a few women in a very large class of men. Sure. And I didn't really think about it, and that was fine. But in a way, I was paving a way for other women, for younger girls. And, and I try to do that, paving a way for women in, in so many ways. But just by doing what was right and being there in the class, being a role model, and of course, the women in the generation before me, because I'm 57. So we're talking about the 60 and 70 year old women who are martial artists. They truly did pave the way. They truly were the strong female ruler type person in the martial art culture. Yeah. And that's, so. that, that does marry up perfectly with, again, with what we're talking about here with with Amarinus because we've, she was a Kandaki, which means a, a strong female ruler, and there were clearly strong female rulers that followed her and were able to retain the peace at different periods of time, were able to reinforce that peace that she set there. So she did set that example. The fact that there's a name for strong female rulers in ancient Nubian history mm -hmm. sort of demonstrates that there was a culture for that. That's examples. Fast forward to today, as you're just discussing there, even over the past year, I've seen female martial arts teachers break away from their school, found their own martial arts mm -hmm. school, create their own name, create their own identity, and their students have followed them. Yeah. And those students are strong male and female students, and well, people of all mixed ability, but absolutely accepting of it. 
as you say, go back to 1989 even, and could you imagine many athletic men in their their late teens, early 20s, be typically being taught by female instructors? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of my instructors was female early on and were female instructors. Of course, there were at that particular time when I first did martial arts. But the fact that you'd have ones that would go away and now become completely master of their own school, not just one of the instructors, which essentially are answerable to a male chief instructor or a male head of the school. Uh, You know, now you've got women heading schools and becoming their own chief instructors as well. And it being completely accepted with male and female. It's a wonderful thing to see. And again, the Kandaki of today, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I say, and sometimes dealing with abusive systems as well. That was a really important point, which does happen within martial arts schools. It does. Yeah, it does. It happens within schools and also, you know, outside of the schools. So, yeah. Yeah, so they're continuing to fight that battle and the fact that it doesn't turn them off their martial arts practice. But instead, in many cases, they're able to step away, break away. Even if the information I've been taught to has been from an abuser, it doesn't make the information bad. They even take ownership of this and turn it to something positive and, and worthwhile for my students. Yeah. So we move on to the story of Lin Xiang. Although as much is shrouded in legend about this 17th century martial artist, there's a general accepted consensus amongst Chinese historians that she existed. She was born into poverty, was a martial arts prodigy, married into royalty, trained an army and died a loyal warrior general at either 17 or even as young as 15 years of age. She was born into an impoverished military family towards the end of the Ming Dynasty in 1629 when China was suffering from war across its regions and internationally as well as huge droughts and famine. Lin Xian's martial arts training began under her father at age six in which she excelled in the sword and also learnt the spear. When her father died, she was forced into a life of prostitution on the banks of the Qinwai Qiu River near modern-day Nanjing. According to the story, she was spotted practicing martial arts on the riverbank by the Zhu Changshu king of the feudal Qinshu estate. He fell in love with her and was also equally impressed by her martial prowess. Not only did she become his bride, but was also tasked to train all the palace concubines in martial arts. Apparently these simple self-defence classes escalated into the creation of an all-female army. Later rebels from the Shaxi and Shanxi provinces descended from the north in response to extreme drought and famine conditions in search of food. They raided the Xinquai Qiu state and took King Zhu Changshu hostage. Lin Xiang led a rescue operation with her army, initially surprising the rebel army and freeing the king. However, they were eventually overpowered. According to some legends, Lin Xiang refused to surrender and was the last member of her own army standing. So what do you take from Lin Xiang as an icon and for inspiration? What I see is that martial arts pulled her forward into a better life. That's what I see, because... We know that she learned martial arts at a very young age, sword and spear. You mentioned yeah. her father died, and then there was issues of having to be a prostitute. And yet she continued her martial art practice. And she eventually found someone who loved her and eventually trained women in martial arts, which led to an all-female army. I just I find that so inspiring and in how she used martial arts to pull her through her life into a better place. I wrote a blog and I called it Martial Arts Saved Me. And what I talked about was the fact that 
who would I be today if not for martial arts? And I thought, well, you know, I wouldn't be the confident person that I am because I wasn't all that confident before I began martial arts. They really <laughs> helped me become more confident. I wouldn't be as inquisitive. I wouldn't be here talking to you today. Yes. I wouldn't have the confidence to write books, to talk about experiences, to interview other women. Who would I really be? And I see myself maybe as this sort of frumpy 57-year-old woman, maybe overweight, maybe not that happy. So in many ways, martial arts, I think, saved me uh, from being the person I would never want to be. And that's how I see her. Yes. I see her as allowing martial arts to be the constant in her life that continually saves her from being who she does not want to be. And it pulls her forward uh, into eventually a better life. And then when we're talking about an all-female army, we can really envision this very close-knit group of women. Now, women can go one of two ways, right? When we put women together, they're either nasty to each other or they're like a team and they just love each other and work together. And so I sort of see this female army as the type that would be working together. And today, when we're talking about all female armies, not in the physical sense of being soldiers or actual armies, we do have some all female type things happening in martial arts to help us create better platforms for women, such as, for instance, my podcast, which is only interviews female martial artists. Yes. There's a lot of martial art associations out there that are just for female martial artists. Yeah. And I can say, you know, women are not trying to say we're better or even that different as martial artists, but we do need the chance to build who we are in the martial art world. Yeah. And then I spoke to someone recently when we're talking about cultures and women together in a certain culture. And she's a Native American. Her name's Bethany Dillon. And she talked about how she sees a tribal culture in martial arts, how when women do band together and what we might reference as an all-female army of sorts, that there is this culture that is created that can grow and help women martial arts have a better place in the martial art realm. I think that's growing. And I like to see what's happening Yes. In this direction. So those are some of my thoughts. I see all of these kind of bits and pieces in today's world. Yes, definitely. I mean, one of the things that strikes me when I look at Paris is how short her life was. But and what you just highlighted there was a really the fact that martial arts was her constant. And the fact that modern day female martial artists can bond that their shared interest is the martial arts. And that itself is a useful vehicle. That itself is a useful way to bring them them together. They've got that commonality. They're enthusiastic about martial arts, but to work it together because quite universally, often male dominated, whichever area you're looking at. So women coming together to say we're not trying to push men out of martial arts, and it's ridiculous. And the fact that the fact that I've seen that reaction when they say an all female martial arts association or an all female martial arts club, and there's that reaction from males about that. You're going well. You're kind of missing the point here. You're real off ten grand 
masters or name a martial artist, you know, go through a list and they'll inevitably be male, won't they? Whether it's fictional or mythological or historical or present day, inevitably it will be a male. When you find that situation, you go, well, there you go, that's the problem. But we've got to kind of readjust that balance. The only way we can do that is by coming together, training together, talking together. Because again, also a lot of women, due to the way that society has been for so long in so many different cultures and uh, countries, women have been intimidated by turning up at a martial arts class. I mean, you talk about your right. own experiences that right. you, you know, you know, why were there so few women in that class? Well, quite clearly, because a lot of women felt it was a very male-dominated thing. That's that the problem right there. So as far as I can see, is just uh, readjusting the balance and dealing with it in a very practical way. Right, right, exactly. So actually, that moves us quite nicely onto the great Ella Hatton, one of my personal favourites, known by her stage name, fighting stage name, as La Jaguarina. Ella Hatton is the most celebrated student of the legendary duelist and martial artist adventurer Colonel Thomas Hoyer Monstery. Born in Zanesville, Ohio in 1859, Ella would lose her father to the Civil War in 1875 after the family moved to Meeks Township. Eventually Ella moved again with her mother and brother to Cleveland. Yet another example of the martial arts and show business connection, Hatton became a professional actress and joined a theatre company in New York. She developed an interest in fencing when her Spanish mother began teaching Hatton the foil and knife at age eight. Ten years later, and in New York, she engaged the services of the great monstery. Although both she and her teacher are described as master fencers, the modern interpretation of their art does not adequately convey the disciplines they knew. Monstery was an avid martial arts cross-trainer who wrote extensively about combat systems of different areas and was a studied man of war. He fought under several different banners, travelled the world and fought numerous duels under various different conditions. When Hatton left his intensive tutelage of three years, she was taught sabre, broadsword, single stick, dagger, bayonet, lance and bowie knife, as well as 19th century pugilism and unarmed combat. Her teacher was fascinated with learning these arts for self-defence and duelling reasons, and was no fan of the safer versions that were beginning to emerge at the end of the century. Taking the name of La Jaguarina, Hatton toured the world to engage in fencing competitions. She defeated over 60 men in these contests, 27 were stated to have been accomplished masters at arms, and several were famously proficient duelists. She even fought her old teacher in a lively competition for four hours to a duel. Hatton was noted for her eloquence and intelligence, as well as her passion for promoting better health. Hatton and Monstery were years ahead of the physical improvement trends, the public teaching of self-defense to women, and the interest in female fencing that began in the 1890s. Hatton's last recorded appearance was in 1907 when she was touring as an actress. She has since mysteriously disappeared from the annals of history. Enough of my rambling. What were your impressions, Andrea? Well, first of all, I appreciate her engagement in the weapons and the boxing. Uh, Even today, women boxers are not that well established, but there are women boxers out there. So I'm guessing that part of her influence really falls upon these women who are trying to be boxers in today's world. It's an interesting topic because culturally, I think we don't like to see women fighting each other that way, right? So there's a lot of things that mentally we need to overcome just to watch women boxers. And that's probably why they're still really working to create something for themselves. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was a very interesting point. Also, the fact that she's an actress 
and a creative person because I do see a lot of martial artists, both men and women, but a lot of women who are very creative in their lives. So whether, and, and martial arts influences that. We see a lot of music, we see a lot of musicians, we see a lot of writers. We see women martial artists who do a lot of public speaking. So they have this very strong sense of being in front of people. The instructors that we have who are women really are able to be creative in their martial art training and also in their lives. So it's kind of interesting to bring that together. Also, the fact that she defeated these men, 60 men, yeah. many of whom were champions, yeah, 27 was stated to have been 27. Of, yeah, I think that is so interesting because even today, we don't see men and women really fighting equally yeah. with each other, different athletics. We might see men and women sparring together in classes. And this is always interesting because you have to ask the question, do they see each other as martial artists? Or do they see each other as their gender? Am I looking at another martial artist when I'm sparring? Or am I looking at a man? And it's really important to know that when you're in martial arts, gender really isn't a fact, I guess. We're all the students. We're all in the same boat. And yet we also know that to be realistic. We see the gender differences. We know there are differences. Yes. How should men and women interact in those situations? And what did these defeated men feel when this woman beat them back in A Victorian time? era, obviously. I mean, very colonial in that respect. But when you think of the age when she would have done it, that was an age mm-hmm. where well, certainly over mm-hmm. in the UK, and it was, you know, and I'm sure it, it was very much in the US as well at that particular time where she was doing a lot of fighting. There was a lot of oppression of women at that particular time where women were expected to be ladies. That was what was being promoted. Yeah. So for her to stand out there, but also be an actress as well, a role that you would expect would have a certain aesthetic to it, attractiveness to it in some respect when you're on the stage. But yet there she was and enjoyed being a fighter more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, she was, I mean, there were years yeah. ahead, but both she and her teacher, of course, uh, Colonel Monster, in teaching women, and he openly taught women's self-defense, women's boxing. Of course, there were a hundred years prior to them, there was a Georgian culture of female fistfights occurring, which was, I don't like to use the term because I think it's, it's often very subjective, but I think it's fair to say it was fairly exploitative in terms mm-hmm. of what was going on there. But there is also an actual noble tradition of female boxing that was in circuses and fun fairs again back to my history again a lot of history there uh, which was more prevalent there than than it was outside in the mainstream boxing in the boxing booths Mm -hmm. and that was there but again little known of it's a little known part of history tucked away but you find it when you start looking back but here you've got Ella Hatton bringing women boxing right to the forefront and not only willing to fight women, but saying, you know, I'll fight men, I'll fight everyone. It was a weapon art that she was training generally at these offensing matches. But again, this stuff is close to dueling at that particular Mm -hmm. time. Uh, But funnily enough, there was 
A trend for women's fencing had started in the 1890s, and it is speculated that uh, Ella Hatton was one of the, you know, you talk about women being exemplifications and martial artists. She definitely was that. So there was a strong speculation, but I think it's a good point, the fact that this well-publicised female fencer winning all these fights, and then suddenly you've got 1890s women taking up a lot of fencing. Yeah. I think it's a fair guess to say that she had something to do with that. Right. Very interesting. Okay, so Edith Garrard, and uh, I don't think I could do any, just like the Amazons, I don't think I could talk about historic female martial artists without mentioning the great Edith Garrard. Edith Garrard was one of the first professional female martial artists in the world. She and her husband William were introduced to Jiu-Jitsu in 1899 when E. Barton Wright began promoting his new martial art, Bartitsu, in London. Barton Wright's school did not last long, but he brought over jiu-jitsu instructors from Japan. One of these was Sadakazu Ayunishi, who became a professional wrestler and opened up one of the first jiu-jitsu schools in the UK. William and Edith began training there, eventually becoming instructors and then owners of the school. They ran several exhibitions, wrote articles and had books published. However, Edith's most famous role was in running classes on jiu-jitsu specifically for the suffragette movement in order that they may defend themselves against vigilantes and police when they protested for women's rights. Edith trained up a group of 30 women known as the bodyguards who served as security for when the women went on their protest marches. She died aged 99 and her legacy has lived on through biographical movies, TV dramas, novels and comic books to this day. So what is your impression of Edith Garrard and what she's done for martial arts for women? I think she's such an important role model. As you said, she was one of the first professional martial artists, I think, um, considered that. She fought for women's rights, which we still do today. There are always women's rights issues, and she was in the forefront of that at that time. The other thing about her is that she died when she was 99 years old. She lived a really super long life. Yes. She she trained up a group of women as bodyguards. She did really so many things. She really set the stage for women to be recognized as martial artists. Yes. It's interesting, her age, her working with her husband. We see that a lot nowadays, whereas, again, in the past, even her time, it would be unusual to see a woman and a husband training together in a martial art. Mm-hmm. It is a trend that I see today. Yes. It is. My husband and I train together, for instance. Yeah. Um, a lot of the women that I know train with their spouses. And I think that's a really interesting concept that we don't think about a lot anymore. But really, she may have helped the promotion of working martial arts with another person who's that close to you, your spouse. Her age is interesting. I interviewed a woman who is 83 years old and just tested for her fifth degree black belt. And I thought, wow, I mean, this woman is like Edith showing that you train in your life without consideration maybe of age, of who you are, but just because it's something that you know that you can do, age is no matter. And so I just find Edith very inspirational in that overall sense that she did so much really to, as I talked about earlier, pave the way. And even if we don't know Edith, I hadn't really researched her or knew much about her, but I can see clearly, 
persuasiveness of her martial art training in the world today. And sometimes we can't always pinpoint how things come about, but I think somebody like her is the type of woman martial artist who actually has created pathways to our current day martial art women, for our current martial art women. Those are some of my thoughts on her. And, and the fact that she was training people to defeat difficulties for women of the time is also very important. It brings you full circle somewhat, doesn't it, Andrew? With it the, does. With the Amazons, we know you stepped off early on with saying, let's talk about more than just the physical fight when it comes to martial arts and what it can mm-hmm. take you through. And there you've got Edith fighting two battles. You've got the overall larger scale battle of fighting for rights for women the right to vote. The fight that she really kept on until attitudes were changed after the First World War, but she was fighting hard right up to that point. Fighting the literal establishment, when you consider that, they were learning jiu-jitsu to defend themselves from police officers who were yeah. attacking women, molesting women, and vigilantes. And often, you know, vigilantes, that you've got to look at it and think, the hypocrisy there is something else, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. you're telling women to behave like women, but it's okay for you to physically attack women. So right. crazy. It's often the problem with corrupt ideas, isn't it? Again, it takes you back to the whole Amazon warriorhood where you have these different battles where it's not just the vision of, of women being able to do something that's compatibly efficient and demonstrably so, but also this wider battle. There's so much there as the fight for change. Yeah. Yeah, quite quite a role model. And I'm glad I'm glad I've had the opportunity to learn more about her through you. So thank you. Thank you very much, Andrea. But where can people find out about uh, Andrea Harkins and the Martial Arts Woman? I know you have two books out. I read the first one and was blessed with a review copy of that to begin with. Um, Mm -hmm. It's great. Um, You have an excellent podcast and an ongoing blog but please please could you tell everybody about how we can find out about Andrea Harkins and the martial arts woman absolutely I'd be happy to you can find my books the martial arts women or martial art inspirations for everyone on Amazon I'm working on my third book right now which is called how to start your own martial art program which I think after the, the COVID situation settles down that maybe people will get back to wanting to teach their own programs and find locations where to do that and all of the little tidbits of information that they have to to get started in that. So that's what I'm working on right now. But as I said, the other two books are available on Amazon or you can contact me directly. If you search Google or any internet for Andrea Harkins or the martial arts woman, you're sure to find a lot of information at your fingertips. I have the martial arts woman blog which is the martialartswoman.com. I have the Martial Arts Woman podcast, which is on all of the major podcast platforms. I'd love to have some more listeners hear some of these women's stories. And I have several Facebook pages, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Just if you search my name, you'll, you'll definitely find me. So I look forward to meeting some new friends. Thank you very much, Andrea, for agreeing to be on the show and for going that extra mile by putting up with one of my requests for the, <laughs> for the, for the topic of the show. I would love to interview you again. I've got so much I'd like to discuss with you because you open up so many different topics and so many different ideas as well. So I'd, I'd love to have you back on the show again, if, if you're willing. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you, Jamie. It's been my pleasure. 
Once again, I would like to thank Andrea for indulging me in this particular idea for a show. Please check her out in the show notes to this program. My review of her first book, The Martial Arts Woman, can be read on my blog. Andrea strikes me as one of the most genuine people in the martial arts social media scene. She never appears to falter in doing her best to motivate through the practice of martial arts and in setting a positive example for everyone. I think it might be appropriate to dedicate this episode to the memory of my great-great-aunt Sophie from my mother's side of the family. Aunt Sophie is something of a mysterious character from our history. She worked on our travelling show at one time as a fortune teller, where she apparently stirred things up by revealing to a local policeman's wife that her spouse was having an affair. Aunt Sophie marched with the suffragettes, and on her first memorable occasion, she was offered a place at the front, where, unbeknownst to her, she would take the brunt of rotten edibles. I heard some say tomatoes and others eggs that were frequently thrown at the protesters. Three of my books are now available as e-books. Mordred's Victory is a genuine second edition with new material, some editorial changes and some additional photographs. Rong Fu is now available as a paperback for the first time since it was published. You can order these directly from Amazon or you can order signed copies from me. Unfortunately, all of the reviews I built up under my previous publisher have not been transferred over despite my requests. Therefore, I would really appreciate it if those of you who have read them could go onto Amazon and write a nice review for me. You might also be happy to know, going by the requests received over the years, that I have full intentions of making all my books available as paperbacks. On the subject of reviews, I need them. If you've benefited from my services in general, my Google business page could certainly benefit from your kind feedback. If you enjoy these podcasts, please rate and review them on iTunes, Stitcher, Podtail, Owltail, TunedIn, Podplay and anywhere else you download your podcasts. If you have trouble finding the listing... The show is still listed as Jamie Club's podcast rather than the Club Chimera Martial Arts podcast because I'm awkward like that. If you want to get in contact to give feedback on the show or request information on my services, please check out the website clubchimera.com where you'll see a huge back catalogue of written material including regular lesson reports. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram where I'll be posting up regular news of monthly webinars and other events. Why not book yourself on one of our regular events or even a course for you or your club or association? I have a seven-part series of webinars for self-protection covering soft and hard skills that have been very well received over the past year. I'm also launching a trilogy of edged weapon awareness and defence webinars that you can book now. These courses can be attended as live public events or you can book them as part of my personal training service. Next episode... It will be my honour to host Mary Stevens, the founder and head teacher of Athena Karate, where we will be discussing her choices of books for martial artists. Mary, a professional English teacher, has come up with some truly original and insightful choices that you're not going to want to miss. Tune in for an exceptional episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>